my name is Jess Petrowski, and I am going to be talking today, um, Plugged In, How Media Attract and Affect Youth. I am an associate professor at the University of Amsterdam. I'm also the dire director of the Center for Research on Children, Adolescents, and the Media there, um, which has given me a um, really lovely opportunity to think uh, social scientifically about the relationship between young people and the media. Um, my center has about 30 uh, researchers at the moment, and they're really asking a range of questions about how young people are growing up, developing, um, and are being influenced by the media today. Um, this is uh, the view I get to look at often, so if anyone wants to come visit me, this is my, my home space. Um, and uh, when I joined, I know everyone's like, oh, I want to go right now. Um, when I joined the UVA about almost seven years ago now, um, and the, I was uh, quickly named the director of the research center. And um, I always tell this story that the day they changed the directorship and the phone number began forwarding to me and the email addresses started coming to me, I was suddenly bombarded with questions. Um, very, very fast, I started getting phone calls from parents in the community asking me things like, um, is it true that my child's brain will shrink if they use an iPad? Um, or what is a snap and should I worry about it? My child keeps talking about gramming. I don't know what that is. Um, or I'd get questions from the Ministry of Education. Should we put games in schools? We don't think that's a good idea or we're not sure about it. Um, Questions from the Ministry of Health, is advertising making children obese? Can you answer these questions for us? And I was getting so many of these so quickly. Um, I started thinking, you know, where do I direct people to? I, I felt like I had some of the answers, but I wasn't sure how to direct people. What's the quickest route? What's the way I can reach these people? Um, and I talked with the founder of the center, Patsy Valkenberg, and she and I were brainstorming together because we both felt this sort of need to figure out a way to provide um, accurate information to the community. And ultimately, what that led to is our new book, which just was released a few weeks ago. It's called Plugged In, How Media Attract and Affect Youth, um, published by Yale University Press. And that's actually what inspired today's conversation a little bit. So what I want to do is kind of give you a little bit of background on what we thought of when we were writing this book and some of the key questions we tried to address and what those answers might look like. So the first thing we tried to do when we decided to, okay, we're going to go ahead and write this book and really try to put together something that will be useful to a range of audiences, parents, pediatricians, teachers, faculty members, producers such as yourselves. Um, we really wanted to understand why are we getting so many questions? Why are we getting so many questions that really have a they have a sense of fear to them, a real sense of concern. And one thing we argue that likely explains a lot of this is what we call chocolate headlines. What is a chocolate headline? Here's a few examples from the past month. Teenagers are replacing drugs with smartphones. My favorite is how smartphones became the new heroin for teens. Uh, I love that one. How social media is a toxic mirror. Or um, children who watch TV may have, may have damaged brain structures. Now, all of you in this room are involved in this media space, right? And you're all snickering a little bit. I see, I see smiles on your faces because you're like, this is, this is a bit absurd to read these things. But at the same point, you have a very interesting expertise. When you read this, you're reading it within your own lens, right? your own experiences that help you interpret these headlines and kind of have that sort of laugh and think, OK, come on, this is very dramatic. But pretend you don't have that experience for a second. Pretend you haven't been working and living in this space for so many years. Pretend you are a parent who doesn't know these questions. Pretend you are a teacher. Pretend you are a pediatrician. Pretend you are an aunt, an uncle. And you read this. You pick up the paper, and you read this. 
It kind of makes sense that we're getting these phone calls. It makes sense we have these concerns because it's being reported, right? This is what we're hearing. Teenagers are replacing drugs with smartphones. That is something that's going to bring about fear. And this fear rhetoric, we think, is one big reason that we see so many questions. Now, my concerns with these headlines are a couple things. On the one hand, they're often only reflecting one study or one very specific piece of a study. So for example, a study may be done with eight-year-olds in one particular country, and being able to say, well, this, you know, this is what we know across the board is not really true. It's one particular study. And at the same point, we often see this effort to generalize and say, well, if it happens for this kid, it must happen for everyone. That's what this study is telling us. That's not how science works. It's just not that easy. But unfortunately, that's often what we see in news, the news coverage. And what that means is that ultimately, the popular rhetoric really is more of a cautionary tale. What not to do. Don't do this. Don't touch this. Don't use this. Be careful. Be aware. Be scared. That's not fair. And it's not true. So what Putsy and I decided to do from this, part, from this um, lens is we said we want our book to be accurate, historical, state-of-the-art and international. We want to know what's happening around the world, and we want to be able to say, this is generally what we see. This is what we feel comfortable as scientists saying is what's going on. And so that was really sort of the lens that we approached reviewing and writing this book. And we tried to answer a couple questions, a few of which I'm going to try to answer today. One question we wanted to know is, have children changed over time? Often when you hear popular rhetoric about young people, you'll hear things such as, oh, children are so different than ever before. They're so much more narcissistic than ever before. They don't know how to play outside like former generations. And you hear a lot of these conversations lamented. We wanted to know, is this true? We also hear lots of questions that, oh, media is so different than ever before. Is it? Let's find out. And the last question we wanted to know is, what is the relationship between young people and the media? When you look at it internationally, when you try to take this historical landscape, where are we at then and now? So what do we find when writing this book? Well, first thing is, in terms of have kids changed over time? Yeah, actually they have. When we look at former generations compared to the current generation, kids are in fact different than former generations in a couple unique ways. So one, we see that they're physically larger than previous generations. And I'm not necessarily talking about obesity per se, but I'm actually also talking about actual physically they're taller than former generations. And what we believe when you look at the relationship, this actually has very little to do with the media landscape and seems much more likely that we have improved nutrition over generations. But yes, they actually do physically look different. They actually have puberty earlier. They're physically taller. They are physically different. They're also smarter than former generations. Now, this is interesting, and when you read the work on intelligence and you read the work on smart, as they would call it, there's different um, attributes of intelligence. Some of you in the room may know these ideas where, for example, you might have fact-based knowledge. In some literature, they call this crystallized intelligence. This is sort of the facts that I have that I just know. And then there's more flexible intelligence. Think of this as things like working memory, thinking about this as problem solving, being able to think flexibly, have different information, giving a child a problem and saying, can you figure out how to solve this, right? So this more flexible thinking. Flexible thinking, you can't Google the answer to. Crystallized intelligence really is those Googleable facts. There's some articles suggesting that perhaps at some point this crystallized intelligence might even decrease a little bit, perhaps because we're storing less information in our brains. If I said to you, how many people know all the phone numbers stored in their smartphones right now, we would probably laugh a little bit. I don't even think I know my husband's cell phone number anymore. But that's the idea that um, 
that's more of a crystallized intelligence. It's more of a, of a fact. But what we see is actually kids are becoming more inflexibly intelligent over time. And one actual attribute of this seems to be gaming and the digital media space in particular. And if you think about a game for a second, it kind of makes sense that when you're practicing and playing gaming, you are using your brain in very different ways and you're kind of mapping through different options and we see improvement <laughs> translated to flexible intelligence. So yes, kids are smarter, particularly when it comes to flexible intelligence. They're also more narcissistic. This is something we've heard and actually it is true. There, we do see that there's a tendency to be a little bit more narcissistic than previous generations. Now I say this and I say, keep in mind two things. One, it may have been socially less desirable to have said yes to narcissism questions generations ago. We live in a society now where some people argue a healthy dose of narcissism is actually needed for success. And you also have to keep in mind that we live in a generation where narcissism is, is a bit more socially acceptable. I have the image up here of the selfie. Think about the selfie. Think about that. That is emblematic in some ways of a narcissistic behavior, but it's also a socially acceptable behavior. So maybe it's not that strange that we see some movement in narcissism. We also see that children have more psychosocial problems than former generations. So for example, um, we see uh, increases in depression diagnoses and ADHD diagnoses. Again, I would say take this with a caveat though. Is it that this is actually increased from previous generations or are we just doing a better job at diagnosing it? So it's hard to really know where this comes from. But with all these changes, and I'm saying yes, kids have changed over time. One thing we also found when writing this book is although they're different, they're not that different. Yes, there's changes. Yes, we see some of this, but actually there's far more variation within the current generation than there is across generations. There's just so much more mixed in our current group than compared to former. So yes, they've changed, but not that much. So that was question one. Question two I said to you is, well, have the media changed over time? You guys probably know this answer more than I do, but what we did was we really tried to understand. We did a variety of content analyses. We looked at what was going on across the international landscape. And unsurprisingly, yes, the media has all, have also changed over time. You're all shocked. Um, when we look at the media landscape, what we see compared to former to now is that it's far faster and more complex than ever before. We also see, as many of you would certainly know, is that it's much more personalized than ever before. We all have these sort of information at our palms, right? This smartphone, for example, every one of us could have the same app on our phone and have a very different experience based on personalization. And we see this happening more and more. And we also see, even for the youngest kids, that their media landscape is far more diverse. I was looking at the, the program for this conference and you just see so many different types of media being discussed. There's just so much more there. So if kids are different than former generations, and if the media landscape is faster, more complex, more personalized, more diverse than ever before, what does that mean for the relationship between young people and the media? What does that actually mean? What's going on today? Well, perhaps not that surprisingly, is what we found is the relationship kind of has stayed the same over time. It remains reciprocal. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look at the relationship and you look at studies worldwide and really try to understand what's going on between young people and the media, we see two things happening. On the one hand, child development predicts media use. This is probably one of the core things that we see over, over, and over again, is that the age you are, sort of this idea of your development, your physical, your cognitive, your socio-psychological development, influences the media you are interested in. 
right? So this is one side of it. So we see for very, very little ones who have less developed cognitive, uh, cognitive skills, they're interested in content that's really going to grab their attention, right? So sounds and flashing effects and things that sort of grab them at first. As they get a little bit older and their cognitive skills improve, for example, they become much more interested in story and narrative and are able to encode more information, particularly content that's a little familiar to them, right? Not so different, just a little familiar, just a little different for them. As they get a little bit older and the peer network becomes more important, they're suddenly gravitating more to content that allows for them to have more peer connections. This is where we start to see interest in games, for example, because they can really use more games. They have the cognitive skills to do it. And they're beginning to develop those social emotional skills where they want to engage with their peers. And then by the teen years, all of a sudden you see really rich experiences where teens are looking for content that not only allows that peer network to play supreme, so yay social media, but we also see that they're looking for content that's going to allow them to experience things that maybe they're really interested in. Things like risky media content, risky behaviors, sexual media content, things that let them think about their self-identity and how they want to be and even think about different potential identities that they could have. Now, this is just a couple key examples. In the book, we really go through in detail each one of these developmental periods and walk through relationships between how this development influences media preferences, access, and use. But remember, I said the relationship's reciprocal. So who this child is, developmentally, cognitively, social, emotionally, really influences what they're interested in. And those of you creating media content know this to be true in your own work. I talk to people all the time that say, yeah, of course, this completely makes sense. But what we also see is that media use influences their development as well. And this is where a lot of these chocolate headlines come from, right? This is where these effects come from. Oh, this is how media has done this to our kids. So what's going on with that? What do we see when we look internationally? Many of you have heard this over and over again, and in fact, it, does, it is true. Media violence, so violent media content, is associated with aggressive behavior in young kids. But not all kids. This is really important. Although the headlines might make it suggest that, yes, media violence is terrible for all kids. Actually, what we see, it's particularly problematic for boys. It's particularly problematic for kids who maybe have a very um, strong interest in sensational content. So we call this a sensation-seeking trait. Um, and also for children who are growing up in more violent neighborhoods, violent families, and violent peer groups, where all of a sudden the messages they're getting in the media map onto their normative messages, and they experience what is often called a double-dose effect. So yes, media violence does lead to aggression, but not for all kids. Similarly, another area of work that we see a lot, often covered actually in the U.S. media space, is sexualized media content. And similarly, we do find that, yes, sexualized media content, which most of the time in the children's and the children, well, I'm really thinking here of tween and teen media space, is very stereotypical, is presented in negative stereotypical ways. Yes, it is associated with unhealthy sexual knowledge and behaviors amongst teens and tweens. But again, not for all kids. Instead, what we see is it's particularly true for kids who uh, experience puberty early and are actually interested in sex much earlier in life and are already engaging in these behaviors. They often don't have another outlet or source to get information. They don't necessarily want to turn to their parents, for example. And so they look to this media content. They're very interested in it. They get these negative media messages, and it reinforces and spirals their behavior. So again, yes, there's an effect, but not for all kids. This is going to be something I say a lot. Third thing we see is I get so many questions right now, and I'm sure you do too in many ways. What is happening with the social media space? Should we be worried about it? 
The fact of the matter is there are some concerns. We do see for a very, very small percentage of young people, there are concerns of cyberbullying. And these kids are also often children that are bullied in the offline space as well. And sexual grooming, sexual stalking, and things of that sort. This is awful. At, at its very baseline, this is awful. 1% is too much, and I want it to stop, and I believe all of us would agree on that. But I want to make it clear, it is a very small percentage of kids. And when I look to figure out which kids are really being affected by this, it's often children who um, maybe are not fully aware of safe media space. And I, we'll use the term roughly media literacy here. For example, posting images online that really are very evocative and not understanding what that means, not understanding media privacy. Um, also, they're much more likely to be children that tend to friend strangers online. Concerning, very concerning. But at the same point, what I find encouraging is we can actually, these are modifiable behaviors. We can actually talk to young people in a way that supports their autonomy and help them understand why these are concerning behaviors and work to offset that. And I really want to work to offset that because just as there are these dark sides, there's also numerous sunny sides of media that we shouldn't miss. For example, when I look at the research on social media, the vast majority of it shows amazing benefits for young people. Friendship formation, for, particularly for kids who are shy or a little uncomfortable, we think there's something to the asynchronicity, right? So the ability to think before you talk to someone and actually take a moment to feel a little bit more comfortable, that seems to really support friendship initiation, which then creates greater offline friendships, um, self-esteem self-awareness, self-identity, getting a sense of who do I want to be. This is one of the biggest goals of the adolescent period is figuring out who am I going to be. And social media provides them a space to try that out. Far more opportunities than consequences. And I really do think that it's something that's important to keep in mind and often lost in our chocolate headlines. And it's not just social media. In general, we see over and over and over again, and so many people in this room are actually the reason that I have this slide to say the media space provides children joy. Let's not forget that is important too. Entertainment is a good thing. It's a welcome thing. It's a wonderful thing. And we see over and over again that the media space brings, people, brings children joy from very young age through their teenage years and beyond. And also, not only do they experience this hedonic happiness, we'd often call it, but especially for our tweens and teens, they also experience eudaimonia. And that's really meaningfulness, that they actually can get very meaningful messages. It's not what we think of when we think of the term entertainment, but it's also very powerful. And when done well, so I'm not talking teacher teachy preachy here, but when done well, educational media content is a brilliant opportunity to really blend the idea of entertainment and education together. And we see this both for content that's aired at home, right? So really, really non-traditional educational media content, sort of the at-home content, but also when it's used successfully in the classroom to help augment and support teacher instruction in really unique ways. But again, it has to be done well, where the entertainment and education are so tied together that you can't pull them apart. And we also see gaming. Gaming is an interesting space. You know, when I got into the gaming literature to write this book, for some reason I thought, oh, I'll only have to review a couple of years, we'll be good to go. <laughs> I was completely wrong. Um, the gaming literature is rich and vast, and it's spread throughout so many different disciplines. But what we see over and over again is the idea of the stereotypical lonesome teenager in his room for nine hours a day, hiding from everyone with pale skin and really having no social life, is not true. 
There is a small number of children that deal with addict, media addiction and game addiction. There's a small number. And these kids have a lot of psychosocial traits that are linked to uh, loneliness and depression and things. There's a small number. But the vast majority, gaming provides entertaining experiences. It provides a really interesting opportunity for friendship, formation, development. Um, it provides interesting um, aspects of self-esteem, self-enhancement. And what we also see over and over again is that in very unique cases where you have, for example, games that might lead to physical movement and things, even benefits in the health space, far more opportunities than there are consequences. Now, I would like to basically say, so that's the answer right there. There's good stuff, there's bad stuff, and I'm off the stage. But there's a little bit more than that. And this is the part that often makes the chocolate headlines really complicated. Media effects just aren't that simple. What I've been saying over and over again, you've heard this a little bit, for some kids in some situation, when entertainment content and education are really bridged together, for certain kids that don't have these traits, over and over and over again, I have these little caveats. But actually, that's the truth. That's what we see going on. Take, for example, the ideas of parents or peers and siblings. Depending upon the parent, for example, with younger kids, my lab right now is studying a lot about the role of the parent in influencing app selection. Parents play a very big role in even determining what media their children are going to have access to at younger ages. Or think about co-play or co-use and what that sort of space, how that may alter the media process. Or think about growing up in a household where parents talk with, about their kids with media content in very different ways. The peer ideas, right? The peer structure I mentioned to you with violent media content, we see that peers can offset or exacerbate media effects depending upon what the peer culture is, particularly in the teen or tween years when peers are so important. And then siblings, the idea of siblings, playing with siblings, watching up, watching down, reading up, reading down, whatever is going on, all of this context influences the media that's accessed and how it's experienced. And it's not just this general context that matters. In fact, it's the individual differences of the child that matters. Every one of these kids that we're creating media content for are different. They have different interests. They have different levels of curiosity that influence how they explore a game. They have different levels of what we call need for cognition, this idea of I need information that influences how they read a text or watch a film. They have different interests in how much sensation they want that affects the experience they have. It explains why two people can sit in the same room and watch the same movie and have a very different emotional response. My husband always jokes around that he doesn't understand how I can cry over every single TV show we watch, and I always say he has a heart of concrete. We sit there and we are looking at the same content and having very different responses. This plays a very big role in how it affects us, and that's the same for young kids. Now the challenge is, and something that I'm faced with as a scientist, is that I often get dinged for having small effects. So what I mean by an effect is the idea, if I looked at everyone in this room and I showed you a clip right now, and we all measured some effect afterwards, on average, it would be really small because all of you are different. So on average, I take all these numbers, it's gonna be pretty small. Some of you are not affected at all. Some are very robust effects. On average, it's tiny. What happens is I'll hear, yeah, media has a very little effect on young kids. Small effects, we shouldn't even worry about it. That's not true. Yes, at the overall monolithic level, the effects are small. But that's not where we should be looking. That's not how media affects us. It doesn't work in a monolithic way. It works in an individual way. So rather than looking at these monolithic effects, what I try to argue for is pay attention to individual differences. For some young kids, there will be no effects. But for other kids with the same content and in different situations, there will be very robust effects. And trying to understand the role of individual differences and what predicts this media they access and how they really experience it is a really key space for us to go moving forward. And it's not an easy space. So on that note, where do I think we need to be going moving forward? 
Well, one thing I think we need to do, and I'm going to use this term very strategically here, I think we need to understand the virtual reality space. I don't necessarily think we should be developing for it yet. Perhaps we should. I'm not sure. But I do think that just because we can doesn't mean we should. I am a pro-media person. I think it's an amazing opportunity for young people. But in my lab, we've been understanding and beginning to get into VR right now. And we're trying to look at it. And what I see, and, I, and you know, there's so many sessions actually here at CMC on VR. And what I see over and over again is the VR space provides such a rich emotional experience. I'm not sure we yet understand how young people will interpret that and handle that. I know for myself, the fact is I can't be in a certain game for more than two or three minutes before I then get me out. And I'm a grown adult that has, I hope, some idea of how to process my emotions. What does that mean for young people? Not saying we shouldn't. I'm saying we need to understand it. And I'm also saying, you know, yesterday there was a panel about the ethics of VR. And I think this is something we also need to be talking about. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. We need to be thinking about the ethical consequences. What are the opportunities and concerns? I always use the example. Teachers will say to me, I can imagine VR can put my children in spaces they've never been to before. I can put them in ancient Rome and I can teach them in a way I never thought I could before. True, that may eventually be the case. But you can also put them in a concentration camp. I don't know what that means yet, except for I know that this is something we need to be understanding. And it's not something that I should be doing or you should be doing. I think all of us in this media space should be thinking through the opportunities, consequences, ethics, and what this means moving forward. I also think we need to be thinking about smartphones and media management in a general sense. So what I mean by that is smartphones, you know, when the smartphone came out, when the iPhone was released, the comment was, uh, Steve Jobs said, this will change everything. And when he said that, I thought, oh my gosh, he's so hyperbolic. Come on. It kind of has. He maybe wasn't that hyperbolic after all. I don't think it's bad per se. I see amazing, incredible apps that children are experiencing joy from and learning from and, and teens, and I think it's great. But I also think we all are at a space right now where we're trying to figure out how close is too close. When do we put the phone down? It's very telling that one of the fastest growing app areas of the app store is or apps that are designed to put our phone down. That's a really interesting space. It's very interesting when you hear teens and tweens and young adults saying, we're coming up with games where everybody puts their phone in the table and the first one to pick it up has to pay for the first drink or popcorn or whatever we're having. There's something about that where people are saying, it's amazing that I can go on vacation and feel like I haven't missed anything. I'm not sure what that means, but I think that moving forward, all of us can be asking questions about media management and what that looks like moving forward so that we can help our young kids figure out what media balance looks like. They learn from us, so it matters for all of us. And I think this idea that media is going to be complicated and complex and media effects will be that way is something we have to continue to remember. Easy is highly overrated. It's just not going to be easy and this is something we need to do. And how do we do this? Well, I think one thing we need to do is what well, this is my favorite bridge in uh, Amsterdam. And I think one thing I would love to do is see us more bridging connections between the, ac the academics and the people creating media content. I feel like sometimes I'm in a silo and I shouldn't be. I'm trying to understand this space. And sometimes I think, how do I get to talk to the brilliant people who are actually creating it? So that's why I'm here. And what I would really hope for is that we can figure out ways where we actually can talk more to each other because there's far more similarities than differences. We all have a lot of the same goals of creating healthy, enjoyable, entertaining spaces for young kids. So ways that we might, we might have different languages, but I think we can figure out ways to bridge connections. And in doing so, what I hope we do is, in, in line with the theme of today's conference, is be open, share ideas with each other, share our challenges, share our experiences. And in that line, 
what I hope with this book that I sort of highlighted today is that this is one step in being open, sharing what we have culled from the literature. And to that, and I want to make a clear point, I'm not actually making any money on this. Pati is not either, because what we thought was most important, if you remember at the very beginning of this talk, I said, parents, practitioners, teachers, we want to get them this information. So what we decided is we worked with Yale University Press. And yes, you can go buy the book. I would love it if you have it on your bookshelves. Please do. But more importantly, you can go download the entire book for free. And that's something that I hope, in terms of the idea of being open, this is an open access book. You can go to Yale's website, my website, Petsy's website, download an entire copy of the book, and hope maybe it plays a role in um, your production of media content and the roles you play in the media space moving forward. Uh, if you're interested to talk more, if you're thinking of collaboration, ideas, if you want to learn more about my center, if you just want to grab a whiskey, I'm a big whiskey fan, um, this is my contact information, and I really thank you for listening today and hope that this was an inspiring talk for all of you.